Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. Welcome to another edition of Observations. What a journey this has been. This is our 90th outing, our 90th episode. Good God, at least 100 plus hours of jibber-jabber talk, talk-a-thon uh, from me about comics and, and, and movies and uh, all, all, that, all that stuff and, and pop culture and streaming. You know, my first episode... I, I I said I'm gonna walk you through my youth, and uh, I think that kind of took longer than I ever expected it to take, and yet it still was over really fast. I I, I thought, man, this will this will be this will be like, you know, years to tell tell these stories to tell the magic of the spinner rack and the magic of the Avengers and the Fantastic Four and all these comic books that hit me as a kid and turned me on and set me on this career path, and. Uh, I mean, I, I'm still, you know, obsessed with comic books in all shapes, sizes, forms. I don't get a lot of new comics. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I go to the comic store. I peruse the shelves. I put a lot of stuff down uh, back. I, I One of the main growth areas of comic books in the last several years has been without a doubt, uh, without fail, 100% is the advancements of computer color, the rendering, the stuff that these uh, amazing artists can do now. Many of them, you know, they, they, they color their own work. They, they, they pencil it, they ink it, and they also apply all of the color, the paint, the, the uh, digital tools that are available to today's uh, comic book talents are second to none. It's like nothing we've seen. And some of these uh, talents have mastered this uh, ability to paint and to finish their own work in, in, a, in a way that I just impresses the crap out of me. A couple of them are uh, either Korean, Filipino, Japanese artists. I didn't think uh, to, re re uh, to, to record their uh, names before I did the show. And of course, I would probably mispronounce a couple of them. One of them in particular, he's been doing, one of these talents has been doing covers for uh, some DC comics, but he has done uh, covers on every one of my Snake Eyes uh, Dead Game issues, and th they're fantastic. He 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 does you know the entire thing from soup to nuts. He does the pencils, the inks, the final color renders, and it's it's amazing. And uh, but it, 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 he's not alone. There's so many amazing talents, and so when I look at these comics. Certainly the covers are very impressive. And then depending on the interiors, uh, the, the, the colors will vary somewhat. But there's a high bar. There's a high bar in regards to quality, uh, computer, uh, coloring, illustration, uh, painting that, that is like nothing uh, that, that we've seen in since, since we kind of broke the mold in Image Comics and introduced the uh, computer coloring across an entire line of comic books with... Uh, what started with Steve Olaf and Ole Optics, we carried up. We 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 carried through uh, with uh, with Extreme Color. Wildstorm had a digital coloring department, and eventually, by the end of the decade, Marvel had built up a, a reservoir of computer colorists that they had taken from the Malibu uh, comic book line. That they that they literally bought the whole company, and I, I guess. You know, from time to time, you'll hear another person affirm 100% that the reason that they did that was to get the computer coloring. But all that withstanding, I still put most everything I get back because it's not compelling to me in the way that I desire. I will, I will tell you, I've shared it here. There's a comic that excites me uh, very much. It's called uh, The Last Ronin. It is the uh, final saga in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Uh, books and the the one of the uh, biggest creative forces on the turtles, uh, Mr. Mr. Kevin Eastman, he of which would there would be no you know uh, turtles and and Peter Laird is is somewhat disassociated with with doing the actual work in the same manner that Kevin is. It's fine. Uh, P Peter did his job. He he retired. He. He, he, he uh, you know, gave us this great world alongside Kevin Eastman and Kevin still is compelled 
to be part of the layouts and the covers and the writing and the con everything from the conceptual stage all the way through. And Last Ronin has been a book that I have seen generate a kind of excitement that you just can't get from a comic book boardroom. That is excitement generated from visionary creators. Kevin Eastman clearly wanted to take this story of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, a huge property, by the way, a huge global, globally recognized, world-renowned uh, pop icon, and 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 do something radical with him, something uh, you know that has never been done, and and uh, you know the resulting uh, excitement created the biggest hit of the past year, and that is pure and simple the juice, the creative juice that flows from an inspired comic book creator. And if there was one thing that I had, I wanted to do when I started this entire podcast was to share with you creators that inspired me. Kevin is certainly among the top tier of creators that inspired me along the way. As I said, I remember very distinctly passing up Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, number one, first printing, I, I grabbed it. It was magazine size. It was black and white. It was certainly it certainly fit within the uh, realms and the confines of of the uh, independent comics that I had been collecting. Warp Graphics had produced ElfQuest, which you know someday I'll devote an entire podcast on. It was and remains my favorite fantasy, one of my favorite fantasy concepts. Period, alongside Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, but it is certainly my favorite kind of fantasy comic book ever created and. The talents behind it was a it was a mom and pop shop, and they just published it themselves and found distribution, and it was a magazine size, also in black and white, like the Turtles. Nexus was launched from Capital Comics by Mike Barron and, and Steve Rude, and that was launched in a magazine size. And I remember grabbing that off the uh, rack at Land of Ooze and Oz, a story a store in Fountain Valley. If it was one block closer, it would be in Huntington Beach. But on those long treks, summer and spring treks to the beach, uh, I had discovered this comic book store. And so it was a day at the comic book store, a day at the beach with my family. And uh, on the way home on that Saturday, I saw Nexus and grabbed it. Again, magazine size, not comic book standard comic book size, but magazine size, black and white. And I was introduced to these talents of Mike Barron and Steve Rude. And and just like I was introduced to Wendy and Richard Peeney on ElfQuest, but that day, which was a little further along, I'm in high school, I, I'm, I'm, my budget was tight. Uh, the day that Turtles came out, while I was compelled and inspired by it, I did not purchase it because there were so many other good comics out that day. Teen Titans, X-Men, it was a full menu. And I just didn't have anything in my budget from the uh, assortment of jobs. At that point, I was probably just delivering pizzas and living off that and, and, the, and, and, and the tips. My, my, my junior year, but, uh, you know, I, I, I will always remember putting it back and then it not being there a couple weeks later and being told that it was a quote unquote hot book. Nobody had it. The, 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 the prices are skyrocketing, but certainly the thing that I was totally drawn to was what they did with the influence of Frank Miller, who was hot off of Ronan and Daredevil and pre Frank Miller, Dark Knight. And Frank Miller is probably the name and the word that you've heard me say the most over the course of these podcast episodes, because I think he's had the most profound impact, not only on the comics industry, but my own work. So it's personal. Uh, I think he is without, you know, fail the best storyteller of multiple eras. I, I, I What he did in blending elements of Gil Kane and Will Eisner and cinema uh, is, is second to none. He made comics move and look you know, like a way that they had not uh, prior to me encountering them. And when I look back and I've really tried to dance with the idea that my I'm hung up on my era of comics because of nostalgia, especially let's say the, the George Perez Avengers issues of which there are so many from 1975 to 1980. And then of course the celebrated John Byrne X-Men run. And yet I walk into the comic store as I did on Wednesday of this past week. And there is yet a new edition, a new reprinting, an epic collection of the John Byrne, Terry Austin, Chris Claremont stories that continue to inspire like nobody has ever inspired. 
I, I cannot uh, possibly walk through every issue as meticulously as I would like with all of you about the Uncanny X-Men and what a drastic uh, sea change it was. I've covered in, in several episodes, go back and find them, the, the, the one's called The Rivalry of a Decade, and it speaks to how George Perez and John Byrne pushed themselves. One is about Byrne and Miller and their visionaries and and and, and the way that they affected uh, the, the, the culture at the time. John Byrne drew X-Men uh, when he came on, it was a bi-monthly book. It, they wanted it to go monthly. It was near cancellation again after all this hoopla of relaunching the X-Men. Um, again, I'm setting the stage for the achievement. John came on and he drew Beast in the way Beast had never been so badass. And Wolverine, he, he was Wolverine's from Canada. John Burns from Canada. He makes no bones about it. He wanted Wolverine to stand out. Wolverine had been semi-neglected because the previous artist, Dave Cockrum, was um, very much focused on making Nightcrawler a standout character. And Nightcrawler's a great character. The, the the funny thing is they both, I would say the, you know, John Byrne did a hell of a Nightcrawler. It's it's really up there with, with Dave Cockrum's, but his interest was in Wolverine. I think Dave Cockrum, John Byrne, they both drew really great storms and really great colossuses. And yet when it came to Wolverine, it was just, there was no contest. John had more love and passion for that character, and as a result, he translated. It popped. The sales popped. X-Men started becoming Marvel's best-selling title from a book that was getting canceled again that was on a six times a year quota, was now bumped up to monthly. It said so on the cover, monthly. Magneto has never looked as good as he had under the the pencil and pen of John Byrne and Terry Austin. The most epic showdown ever, a volcano came down on them, and, and it was... That's a summertime story. I remember walking through the park on the way home, past the swing sets, past the soccer fields, just completely, uh, just just ensconced in every panel on every page of the adventure when the X-Men were held hostage inside the volcano and then when it collapsed and they emerged on the other side in the Savage Land. And that summer with Kazar and Zabu and Garrock and just a completely different locale. And hearing, again, yet a new piece of information, as I did this week, that John Byrne did not like Phoenix. He, he, he was not a fan of Phoenix. He thought she was way too powerful and that it was a lopsided element on the team. And he had campaigned to have Jean Grey and Beast survive the volcano on the other end of the Antarctic so that they would then return to Manhattan and, and inform Xavier that the rest of the X-Men were dead, to their knowledge. But... That period where they globe hop, which made the X-Men the most successful comic book of all space and time, and took it to the top of the charts, John Byrne's vision of them in the Savage Land, then pivoting to them in Japan, then pivoting to them in Canada, where they would be introduced to John Byrne's super team, which was Alpha Flight, and the shock of that full splash page reveal of Sasquatch, of North Star, of Aurora, of Shaman, Snowbird, and Guardian, slash previously Vindicator, all standing there together was like jaw-dropping. And again, the, the fact that I can tell you the time of day and the location, that Alpha Flight issue, I think it's X-Men 120. I bought that, or 121. I bought that at the liquor store, you know, but it wasn't a liquor store anymore. The same liquor store on Magnolia and Broadway had been turned into a 7-Eleven. The 7-Eleven from across the street had taken over the spot of the liquor store. So now that was... You know, that, that 7-Eleven across the street where I got so many of my early Avengers issues where Frankenstein, you know, battles Thor on the cover of the Avengers and I had to hide it because my parents first forbid me to have it. You know, that was now uh, empty real estate and the liquor store was gone and the 7-Eleven jumped across the street. And that's where I got that Alpha Flight issue. <clears throat> always a great space, always a great location for me to grab comic books. And the fact that they have such a profound effect on me and that I can, I, can, I, can, I can feel the sun on my face as I walked out to get in my mom's car to drive home uh, from school. Because even though we had moved houses, you know, when I was in the sixth grade, I still went to the same school. And that's, so we, that same school was just three, three blocks down from Magnolia and Broadway. So I still had two outlets, Stater Brothers and 7-Eleven now, which jumped the street and took the liquor, liquor uh, store space for me to get you know, great comics near, near my new house. I had the Utotum, I had the Foodland, I had the Stop and Go, 
It was I was just surrounded by comic books and great comic books and comic books that defined an era. What Jim Lee and Scott Williams were trying to do, and they would tell this to your face, was trying to replicate that John Byrne, Terry Austin energy. Scott Williams was a was hugely influenced by Terry Austin, as was a generation of inkers. Danny Mickey, Art Tiber, Dan Panosian. These guys will tell you. They will literally sit and tell you and, and fawn over the prescient influence that uh, Terry Austin had on the entire inking core and the way that he would control the thick and thin lines, the renderings, the textures, the zipatone. The guy was a straight-up master. I've always joked he was a time traveler because nobody had that crispness of line, that sharpness of line. It was like he literally came from the future with tools that were, you know, we were unfamiliar with. And again, his name on a cover upped a cover sales 14 to 20,000 sales, according to Jim Shooter, the editor-in-chief, the most influential, impactful inker of any age, anywhere, ever. And these comics, they just resonate. The conflicts, after Alpha Flight, we pivoted to Proteus, Arcade, these great adventures. And then the next thing you knew, we were in the middle of the Dark Phoenix saga, uh, a, a, a movie and a, and a concept that I believe they will eventually attempt to get right. But through that run, you got the Hellfire Club. And and, and, and there, there are members of the Hellfire Club that we still haven't d- seen done uh, according to the way that they were presented in these amazing comic books when, when Sebastian Shaw and the White Queen and, the White Queen and Leland and, and Pierce were all introduced. And I am hopeful for that that weird, creepy uh, Brotherhood uh, uh, Hellfire Club eventually sees the light of day and, and, and we see those pages adapted as they were intended to be adapted. Even though I enjoyed Kevin Bacon as, 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 as uh, Sebastian Shaw and I enjoyed, uh, you know, the portrayal of, of the White Queen in, in X-Men First Class, one of my favorite X-Men movies. I, I still feel that there's an there's an opportunity there to do more. And 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 now we've seen two different adaptations, both of which didn't quite stick the landing of the Dark Phoenix saga, neither of which attempted to replicate the influence of the Shi'ar Empire, with this alien empire that 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 really was was key in, in rallying judgment over the X-Men and putting Jean Grey on, on trial and the Imperial Guard. This echo of the Legion of Superheroes that's existed for 40 plus years that 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 now can easily be adapted. They've survived. They've they've they're their own kind of thing, like the Squadron Supreme, the Echo. I started off this podcast talking about these with this passion, and it's never changed and never will change. And my friends who know me know that I continue to gush over these guys. These are the Spielbergs, the Scorseses, the Coppolas, the Lucases of the of comic books. That's that's who they are. The image guys which was the next big giant flex. I'm so proud and happy to be, be a part. Let me, let me do another roll of that. Proud, proud to be a part. Uh, we, we are like the, the Tarantinos, the Paul Thomas Andersons, you know, of, of our, of our age. We were the new kind of, you know, maybe you can throw a Michael Bay in there. I don't think anybody would mind. Um, we were, we were the new kind of generation of, 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 of guys and we were directly influenced by Miller and Byrne and Starlin and Perez and all those guys. And I've shared these stories ad nauseum, it seems, except I could still talk to them, talk about them and it seems fresh to me. So I hope it doesn't seem old and, and ratchet uh, to you guys. But the whole point of this is the creators are the, the, the makers of the excitement that we share and, and, and that we experience. And I haven't seen a team like Byrne and Austin since Byrne and Austin. I haven't seen a visionary like Frank Miller since Frank Miller. We, we did our best, my guys, and I've seen it. I've seen it from you all when I go to store appearances as I have in the last year uh, and, 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 and celebrated some of the comic books and the, and the signings and, and done events. And, and I see the passion that you guys have for me and my peers and that we were your John Burns and we were your Frank Millers. And I, I appreciate it. And, and I'm, I'm so thankful. And you, you showed up and gave us support. And now you're in the same stage of your life that I was about 10, 12 years ago when I started this mid life swoon love affair with everything that I grew up with. But again, as I, as I, as I confronted, is it nostalgia 
or is is that are those mines are those wells that deep and and I've, I've I've walked you through how I best believe that when you look and see the investments that the studios are putting into this stuff by the hundreds of millions of dollars to re- recreate and replicate the magic of those comics right now whether it's Winter Soldier Falcon whether it's WandaVision whether it's you know Endgame whether it's the Deadpool movies um that that 1975 to 1995 that creative energy when you see season one and two of daredevil season one two three uh when you see you know dark knight and you see batman superman and you see uh justice league the Zack snyder stuff you see ben affleck dressed up like batman he's frank miller's batman charlie cox is frank miller's daredevil we watched 300 300 got a sequel you know it I mean, Frank Miller is the most, you know, the deepest well of all of them. So that's not nostalgia. That's just the work of a genius who is still being, uh, you know, who's still giving dividends. Best investment Marvel and DC ever made in the create is was in the creative vision of a guy like Frank Miller or the creative vision of a guy like a John Byrne. And, uh, and certainly, I mean, I have characters in the Titans universe and they're on TV standing next to characters that I love that George Perez and Marv Wolfman conceived. And that's happening right now. And it came from my childhood. So my childhood, my, and everyone who shared that childhood, that's pretty damn important. And if you crossed over, like I said, let's go, let's go 75 to 80, 95. Those are some, those are some big deal comics. Now we're getting some really good stuff from the uh, stuff that was good in the 2000s and I have told you time and again I'm not the biggest fan of the 2000s and I, the reason I'm not the biggest fan of the 2000s is because things changed committee meetings started deciding what comic books that you would read and you can argue the 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 benefits and there are editors and there are editor-in-chiefs who would pull up a chair with me and say, Rob, you are discounting what we bring to the table. No, I'm not. I just don't prefer it. It's not that I'm discounting it. It What you do gets your job done. But I believe that uncorking the genius of creators gets the job done in a bigger, better, more spectacular fashion. We are still dealing with comic books. We are dealing with an unlimited budget when we put our ideas on paper. There are ideas that I have had this last year that are not anything that would ever be easy to adapt. I don't want to make stuff that's easy to adapt. I don't want to give you a comic book that's a pitch for a $60 million budget or a comic book that's a pitch for a $30 million budget or so much of what's coming out across the board or even what's being envisioned. Now we have streaming budgets as well as independent-minded you know, film budgets, as well as, you know, the big swings. Jack Kirby, the, 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 the king for a reason, right? We call him the king for a reason, and no one's ever going to take that moniker from him. He created worlds that were unlimited in their budget. He didn't think about, well, let me see, let me, let me, let me, let me rein this in, because I definitely want this to be adapted. I want this, I want this to be a movie pitch that when somebody crosses their, you know, their desk, they can go, I can see where we can actually adapt this. I don't want to make comics that are adaptable. My next few comics that I'm going to make, uh, that, that, that are, that are not only maybe some work for hire stuff, but also some of my more ambitious independent work that I'm retrenched in at the moment. It's when I look at it, it's, it's the first 10 minutes is a hundred and $50 $50 million, okay? Much less the entire breadth of the concept. My point being is comic books exist to do whatever the hell you want on the page. You can have two worlds slam into each other, uh, watch them rip and crease and tear and explode and implode, and you can do it across nine consecutive double-page spreads. And on film, maybe that's going to cost you $100 million. It Maybe, maybe that nine pages cost you $100 million. In comic books, it costs you your imagination, some digital ink, some real ink, some computer color, and a printing press, right? I mean, it's it's just the the, the, the Squadron Supreme battling the Avengers in, in, in Avengers 141 all the way through Avengers 149. That's like a $300 million movie. I mean, you've got the entire Marvel version of the Justice League battling the 
entire breadth of the Marvel Avengers lineup, the most powerful Marvel's Avengers lineup. They they battle multiple times. They traverse between worlds. There are these ridiculously uh, expansive sets and 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 uh, backgrounds and and locations that George Perez is going is trying to out Kirby Kirby with some of the tech and the mechan mechanized kind of backdrops and and they're ridiculously expensive they, they they would make any of the star wars landscapes they would dwarf them these are big giant throwdowns and it and it ends with a giant you know 30 foot character called orca throwing down with uh thor in the middle of this giant lightning storm and thor really has to push himself to put this guy down later on thor and the avengers encounter count nefaria which is their commentary on superman he is dropping buildings on them left and right, and the characters are terrified, and their clothes are being ripped off their bodies as Nefarious savages them. And again, you've got big giant Thor set pieces, big giant Iron Man set pieces, big giant Wonder Man and Cap. When Wonder Man, who has got Superman level strength, is given the shield by Captain America to take the battle to him and have a protective cover, you know, that's the most special thing that Cap can bring to the battle along with Wonder Man's Superman strength. I mean, that, that's a moment. Those are big moments. There's a reason they resonate. There's a reason I see them all over social media still because they weren't just nostalgic. They are great, singular, big, expansive moments that define characters in comics and comic book series. And when that volcano falls in on the Met, on, on the, on the X-Men and they're battling deep within the bowels of Magneto's base, that they weren't thinking about budgeting when they did that. They they when you look and see what they were drawing in 1978 and the the lair that Magneto had constructed at the at the base of this volcano and the different cybernetic servitors that did his bidding and, and tended to the X-Men while he was away and the giant battle that they had that then would, you know, again spill them into Antarctica and these I mean, at that point it's the X-Men walking around Jurassic Park every possible dinosaur. There's a Tarzan-type character uh, named Kazar and Zabu, a giant saber-toothed tiger. Uh, there's a there's a ancient evil of a petrified rock man who is worshipped by a sorcerer and uh, sorceress. And I mean, the, 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 the budgets on these movies are insane if they were movies because they're comic books. And uh, again, when I sit down and do comics, I'm not trying... To please a committee. I'm not trying to hit any sort of uh, sales benchmark. I'm just trying to have fun. And when I see an empty page, I see uh, limitless opportunities. And that's that's why creators uh, of that period, Jim Starlin, Jim Starlin was a creator that had no limits, like Kirby before him, all of his cosmic sagas, Warlock, Captain Marvel, the Thanos saga that, that 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 ended with the Thing and Spider-Man and the Avengers alongside Warlock and his crew and Gamora and Pip. This was just nothing shy of phenomenal vision, all in space, unlimited budgets, and the unlimited budgets of the mind, the unlimited budgets of the page. That's what we do. I love watching the Invincible cartoon. I've said this several times. Robert Kirkman and Mark Miller saved the 2000s because... They had no budgetary restraints to their imaginations. They were not trying to be Aaron Sorkin. They were not trying to impress you as wordsmiths. They just had big, giant, hunking ideas, and they wanted you to go along for the ride, and I did. And Mark Miller's authority remains my favorite authority because it went bonkers, batshit crazy with his imagination. There's a showdown in the authority where they have to empty the planet in order to have the fight. That's the terms of the battle. And the big, giant, mysterious, malevolent wizard sets up portals all over the world. The, the Earth agencies, international agencies, to facilitate this giant battle. Because he basically is going to wipe out the authority who is another kind of echo of the Justice League. A little more vicious, a little more bloodthirsty. And to do so, they have to empty the planet. And I remember going, oh my gosh, on what world? I mean, you see... You know, Australia, China, Japan, England, the United States, they're all emptying and going to safe dimensions. And and obviously they will have to return under the rule of this malevolent wizard if he 
completes his throwdown. That is the giant flex of ridiculous, cosmic, unlimited budgeted ideas. And that, my friends, is the value of the creator. For the longest time, I felt that the two companies, the big, the big boys, DC and Marvel, wanted to project that everything that you see is from an easy button. And to some, to some level, that still remains. There was a store, there was a um, there was a campaign, I believe it was for Staples, the supply store, that, that you could get everything from computers to pencils to folders to paper and everything in between, notebooks. Staples, that was the supply store, office supply store. And they grew into these big giant box store monstrosities. At least all the ones around me were almost as big as targets, okay? For for office supplies. Well, in the middle of their run in the mid-2000s of, of, of Staples dominance. I mean, come on. The Lakers and the Clippers still play at a giant arena that bears Staples' name, the Staples Center. Okay, so so they're doing okay for themselves with, 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 with how they've decided to handle their product. Their commercial campaign. And you could even buy it. You could buy one. We had one. My kids loved it. It was called the Easy Button. In the commercial, they would be like, it's that easy. If you want it, hit the Easy Button. A stapler will appear. A folder will appear. A computer screen. A charger, some pencils. Everything was the result of the easy button. It's easy. <clears throat> hit the easy button. It's all in white letters on a big giant red button. And you hit the easy button. And that was the campaign. And I even said to my wife at one point, I, I, this is what the big companies want to think. Uh, and it goes back to the Walt Disney days. That there's just you know Mickey Mouse, Little Mermaid, Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, Pocahontas, uh, you know... Pinocchio, Bambi, it all comes from an easy button. You just, it's Disney. It's Disney magic. It's magic. You, you hit the button and the cartoon appears and the characters appear. And, 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 uh, in this age where characters are the most dominant, where characters are more popular than actors. When, when I was coming up and, you know, I watched a, a movie with my son over, over Easter break, Rain Man, and he saw the full, you know, force of two, Giant Hollywood legends, dynamos, Tom Cruise, Dustin Hoffman, just fill up the screen with that incredible dynamic as, as Tom Cruise takes literally this road trip with his autistic brother and, and, and transforms from this really um, insufferable person into this uh, better person by the end. And, and it's just, it hangs on the quality of the acting. It won Best Picture in 1989, it won it in 1990, but the movie came out in 1989. Dustin Hoffman won Best Actor. I think Tom Cruise got a Supporting Actor nod. This movie was decorated. It was a huge, massive, multi-hundreds of millions of dollars success in a character drama because we showed up for big actors and we showed up for big actors in big, meaty, juicy roles. Today was the anniversary of the first Steven Seagal movie. And then, like clockwork, for the next five years, a new Steven Seagal, Seagal came out. There were always three letters, right? Hard to kill, um, you know, time to die. I'm just making this up but for, for, from my recollection. They were all, I know time to kill is, uh, you know, one of the first ones. But they always were four or three words, okay? And, uh, and Seagal became a giant movie star, giant action star, just appeared and suddenly was alongside Schwarzenegger and Stallone and Van Damme and Bruce Willis as these big giant action stars. And they would carry the interest of the entire 90s. So many hits, so many giant big budgeted movies made based on their faces and their appeal. But nowadays it's the, the, the actors, and we've covered this because it's true, the, 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 not the actors, but the talent is Optimus Prime. The talent is Iron Man and Spider-Man. The, the talent is Deadpool. The talent is, you know, is Wonder Woman. The talent is Shrek. Uh, for the long, I mean, the other day on, on, on the, uh, on the, on the TV, I, I, I came across the, how to drain your dragon and, and how many movies did that, you know, put out because those characters suddenly became so, you know, appealing. Ice Age had a bunch of movies. I saw those because anything that came out when my kids were little, the Shrek movies, Ice Age, um, most everything DreamWorks Animation did, most everything that that Pixar was doing during that time. I mean, it, it's the age of Woody and, you know, uh, I mean, I mean, the, 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 these are the characters. The characters are what we show up for now more than ever. That is part of what has happened with the comic book 
uh, community. But those characters have creators. And I'm not sure I'll, I'll ever be satisfied with the level that the creators should get. Stan Lee got a lot. He became as known as, as a comic book creator has ever become known. I just did a documentary, some documentary interviews for a very interesting documentary that should be out maybe in the next year about Stan, his life, his final days by people who actually did care about Stan, took really good care of him, rescued him from the clutches of all the people who were taking advantage of him. I feel like I feel like when I was discussing Stan and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, Steve Ditko and, and, and their creative contributions, I get inspired. Without Jack Kirby, there's nothing. Stan, you can, you can sliding scale. This is what I say on the documentary. Whatever the character is, it's probably a sliding scale. He's still there. He's involved with every character. But it's a sliding scale. On the Fantastic Four, do I believe that Jack's involvement is 80% to Stan's 20? Yeah, I think that's fair. Challengers of, the, uh, Challengers of the Unknown was a comic that Jack had done prior to Fantastic Four. Fantastic Four reflects a lot of what Jack was doing on the Challengers of the Unknown. It is very safe to assume that those two dynamics are from Jack. Uh, Stan would bring a certain depth of character and feeling, but the, um, the, the, the Galactus of it all, the Inhumans of it all, the Wakanda, the Black Panther, the Silver Surfer, you know, uh, th these are all giant, big, cosmic, uh, uh, epic in scope characters that Jack doled out on a regular basis. Over on Thor, whether it was all of Asgard, whether it was Hemadol, the Warriors 3, Volstagg, Fandral, Hogan, uh, Lady Sif, Odin, uh, uh, the depiction of Hercules, Surtur, uh, you know, um, um, Ulick. Oh, so many great Concepts, characters, looks—that that again, that's that's so much. I mean, I, maybe maybe Jack's eighty-five percent of, of Thor and, and and Stan's fifteen. But when we get to Spider-Man, maybe maybe Stan is, Stan is fifty and Steve Ditko's fifty. Maybe that's a fifty-fifty proposition. Stan seemed to have brought the most of himself to Spider-Man, and uh, obviously Captain America is Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. And let's let's just say that they're fifty-fifty. They 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 threw down. And, and they, they equally share the credit for one of the greatest characters, most popular patriotic character of all time. It's a sliding scale. You know, again, maybe, maybe X-Men is all Stan. Maybe maybe the school, all that stuff, maybe that's all Stanley. Maybe 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 on the X-Men, Stan is 75 to Jack's 25. We don't know, but I would suggest that there's a sliding scale involved in all the creative aspects. And they, we should know it. We, we Look, I saw an interview with Tom Brady the other day. Seven Super Bowl rings. Michael Strahan, who I believe has one, uh, maybe two at the most, is, is sitting there talking to him. Michael, who, who who played against Brady long enough to have been retired from playing with Brady for over a decade, uh, is is discussing Tom Brady's you know amazing career. Now, now Tom Brady wasn't throwing to himself, and he wasn't kicking the field goals, and he wasn't playing defense, but he's the bright shining star of the of the Patriots. Does it take a great offensive line for him to do what he does? It does. He needs a great tackle. He needs great tackles, great ends, great center. He needs good receivers. He needs occasionally, you know, a running back to do the job. But at the end of the day, we give most of the percentages of most of the success for every team that he's ever won on. We give it to to Tom, to Tom Brady, this, this once-in-a-lifetime generational, uh, you know, quarterback, athlete, amazing, amazing athlete. Because he is the giant percentage. You, you, you take him out and they're not the same. For the longest time, we were led to believe that Bill Belichick was the schemer, the, 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 the coach of, you know, that, that would terrorize other coaches. And, and maybe Tom was just a weapon in his hands until Tom left him and exposed him that Tom can go be a weapon in anyone's hands because Tom's got the percentages on his side. And Belichick was left without an ace, a Hall of Fame superstar quarterback, once-in-a-lifetime athletic talent, and his team kind of ground out. And uh, so again, in the creative world, we don't... If, if, if Jack Kirby and Stan Lee had the analytics that were applied to them that they apply now to basketball and baseball players, where it's on-base percentage, steals, you know, in baseball, and then, and then you know, the, 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 the charts 
the analytics in basketball, your three-point shooting average, your two-point shooting average, your offensive rebounding, your your assists, your minutes played, you know, your 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 uh, you know your steals, uh, your 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 efficiency. How 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 well are you shooting per the amount of time you're on the floor? They have schemed it all with numbers. If we applied those same analytics to creators, to Stan, to Jack, to Rob Liefeld, I'd I'd love it. We we you would you would get. The truth, the tail of the tape. You'd get the tail of the tape, the analytics, which we have become obsessed with, numbers. And, and and again, you know, it's with box office too. How many theaters, how many screens was this playing on? You know, in streaming, it's how long did you watch this, you know, watch the show? Did you tap out it for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 15 minutes? Because they know this. You know, I've got buddies now who work for big streamers and they, they can't believe the data that is at their hands. They cannot believe the stuff that they get to play with and know, he says, I know how many people in the Philippines are watching this show right now. I know how many people, you know, in 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 Africa are watching this show right now. I know how many people in in Staten Island are watching this show right now and how long they're watching and, and, and the times that they favor watching it. It is unbelievable. If we applied those same metrics and analytic data to comic book creators, you would get more of a true tale of the tape. Who brought what to the table? Well, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to creative forces. And at the end of the day, comic books are not made in a vacuum. They need creators more than they need committee meetings and planning sessions. And whether it's a retreat in Burbank for DC or a retreat in Marvel, the stuff that I grew up on could not be schemed. You could not conceive of Electra and the hand and all of the incredible ideas and concepts. Daredevil... I was looking through the Daredevil annual the other night, years before uh, Frank Miller would come on. And it had a rogues gallery. And the only cool looking rogues gallery guy was named Gladiator. And he had his buzz sauce. And he was kind of a B-movie, you know, like a little kitschy. Because, but, 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 but Gladiator, good title, decent visual, was, was miles and away superior to Leapfrog, a guy who looks like he's wearing... Uh, a Kmart frog outfit. Leapfrog was a villain of Daredevil. Stiltman, Stiltman. He walks tall on tall stilts. Stiltman was a villain of Daredevil's. The owl looked ridiculous sitting, squatting in a tree. The owl, okay? These are some goofy ass, some serious goofy ass villains. Uh, Frank Miller came in there, absent any committee meeting, and said, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do, you know, Grindhouse, Hong Kong, martial arts, cinema of the 70s. I'm going to introduce some of this Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, mafia shit. I'm going to stir it up. I'm going to make Kingpin into a badass in the likes of what she's never been. You're terrified of him. He has a wife that got, you know, kidnapped by an under, you know, by, by, by basically Morlocks and under a, a, a group of like homeless you know, creepy people living underneath the city in sewers, and, uh, and and there was an albino king that had to be fought to get the to get the kingpin's wife back to him. I mean, there's some crazy stuff. But Electra, the hand, stick, the guy who taught Daredevil how to use his powers, that didn't come out of a committee meeting, and I can tell you most assuredly, it did not come out of a damn easy button. And uh, that came out of Frank Miller. That the idea to take Dark Knight in the direction that he did. Batman retired, coming out of retirement, the, the re-emergence of his villains after all these years, the death of Robin, a new Robin, Superman being the lackey of the Ronald Reagan administration, disposing of nukes, absorbing radi radiation, throwing down with Batman, Batman being smart enough to scheme and being waiting for this showdown his whole life. He'd been waiting, lying in wait to take on Clark and to humiliate him. That is that is not done in a committee meeting. That is done in the brilliance of the mind of a once-in-a-lifetime creator. John Byrne, you know, his his love of Wolverine, the 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 Imperial Guard that he expanded on from Dave Cockerman, Len Wein, the uh, you know, the 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 Alpha Flight, Alpha Flight, a Canadian super team that was so badass, it topped the charts. It topped the charts. John Byrne flexed and we read everything he ever did. These are the marks of creative visionaries that did not come out of a committee meeting and were certainly not a byproduct 
of slamming on an easy button where behind the behind the door a new character emerges. Right now on 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 Falcon, we are watching the Mark Grunewald era unfold before our eyes, and it's exciting. It's exciting, as I said, he did a great, almost decade-long run on that comic book, and it was never stronger than those mid-five years, and he was just U.S. agent, flag smasher, Battlestar, all of it, and we're watching it, and it's a thrill. It's a thrill to see his passion for Captain America come to life. Again, no committee meeting, no easy button, just the passion of a great and talented writer named Mark Grunewald, rest in peace, Mark Grunewald. So what's this all about anyway? The bottom line is creative energies, creative passions. As you guys know, that's where I live. That's what I celebrate. That's what I follow. Nowadays, it's it's harder to, to, to track who's doing what, where, when, how, and why. I would suppose that the guy with the most swag of the last several years is a guy named Donnie Cates who made Venom. Venom had been attempted several times before in the last 30 years, but he never clicked until Donnie put a visionary kind of uh, 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 spell over him and and took elements that he was doing in Thanos and Doctor Strange and Silver Surfer and pulled them in and pulled them in to this vision of Venom where Venom became almost cosmic in nature. And it was thrilling. And it reminds me of what Frank did on daredevil and what john byrne did on all of his comic projects and what walt simonson did when he kicked down the door and introduced beta ray bill and just turned the thor mythos on its ear just just turned it on turned it on its head and spun it um that thor run is dizzying and donnie was a kid of the 90s he grew up loving all of our stuff went deeper into the bronze age Loved all those guys' stuff and has been on a tear. And generally, early on especially, the stuff that I was reading from Donnie was not really the product of a, of a committee meeting. He didn't get the big bells and whistles of the giant events. He didn't get the big bells and whistles. And that's the thing. A lot of the times the really good shit is happening under your nose and you don't know about it for several, you know, several issues. And then the buzz builds. And did you look at this? And did you look at this? And then suddenly people, you know, clamor for it. And the next thing you know, Venom's a hit book. And now Venom demands multiple crossovers because now they've got a giant money-making machine that they didn't have before because they've got a new what? Who? A creator, a passionate creator who instilled it with life and excitement and pulled all the elements of all the disparate projects he was doing together to, to give us this one giant exciting run. And I can't believe that I'm and have been digging Venom uh, during Donnie's entire tenure the way I have, but he brought a creative spark. It reminds me the most, again, of Daredevil and Thor. Well, Thor was really on life support, and, and Walt Simonson came and just kicked it in the nuts and took no prisoners and transformed the entire book, just transformed it. The look, the feel, the tone, the attitude, visually, conceptually. And, and again, comic books... Comic books by committee aren't my most exciting thing. And comic books by creators who are just like, let me toil, let me do this. And and, and generally the publisher will run to catch up with what's happening because they realize we got a good thing here now. We can put booster rockets on it and we can shoot it to the moon. Creative tension. Creative tension generally gives us some of the best stories. And that doesn't always happen in committee. Claremont and John Byrne had giant throwdown knock down, drag out creative issues that, that that went all the way through the death of Phoenix and ultimately John walked and left X-Men because he felt like he could do it on his own and he was right. He gave us a five-year run on Fantastic Four. He gave us a uh, multi-year run on Alpha Flight. He gave us a Hulk run that was brilliant in its one brief year before he went on to do multi-years on Superman and transform that that is creative tension. That's a guy who's bursting to get out. I did it. I did it myself. I know of what I speak. New Mutants and X-Force. Some of the favorite periods of my entire life. My favorite time doing comics, and I'll come back to this in a minute, is probably 1990 through 1994. Just magic. 1989, 1994. So much fun. Such a great time. And and uh, it was just a special time of creating where you can see 
everything that you're doing is cooking and I wouldn't let anybody know what I was doing. I didn't tell anybody what was going on with Domino and Vanessa and with Cable and Strife. Those were all a shock to my editors as much as they were to you, the fans, reading them because I did not conceal. I did not tell them. I did not tell them the Nathan Summers ties that Cable had. I did not. I kept this all to myself when he started exhibiting telekinetic powers in X-Force number one. You're like, what's going on here? And Domino calls him on the carpet. Well, there's a reason for that. That book celebrates its 30-year milestone here in the next year. And we're going to do some special stuff to celebrate it because it sold 5 million copies with characters that had only been done a very, had been around for, for nine months, for 12 months in some cases. Very new characters and concepts, but they grabbed you. That's cre- That was not done in committee. And that was certainly not the product of an easy button that the character emerged. It was, it was a hyperactive kid with a chip on his shoulder. Like Tom Brady told Michael Strahan and Strahan on Good Morning America, he just has a disease. His disease is he loves to throw spirals. My disease is comic books. I sense the disease in the others like me, like a Donny Cates. He has it. He has that, oh my gosh, what am I doing if I'm not doing this? And and that's what I've talked about in my episodes on passions. And 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 the way that you 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 translate this and put it in the page. And I've done all of this while bringing this to you via this podcast that I have enjoyed so very much sharing with you guys. And to the point of the podcast, I am here to inform you that as it exists in the form it exists right now, I am going to be uh, stepping away from the podcast for a period of time. I don't know how long I'll be gone. Um, but I know that I basically said uh, all that I intended to say when I started this, when I wanted to do this podcast, when I thought about talking about comics into a blue mic, uh, this Yeti microphone that's become my best friend. Uh, it was, it was kind of something that I had considered for a while, but then one day I said it out loud around the dinner table and my, my son who was 17 at the time in the middle of our pandemic said, dad, I can take care of that for you. I know how to set this up for you. I can do this. He said, Dad, tell me what you want. I, I, he has one himself. He did YouTube channels in his youth. And he had this whole nice setup. And he said, I can replicate this for you in your office, Dad. Because <laughs> there was no way in hell he was going to let me broadcast from his, his room. So the next day, he said, this is what you want. I'll go get it for you. I, I, I Venmoed him the money. And he brought me back a blue Yeti microphone that he bought curbside, had, had delivered to him out by, by the Best Buy people. And we went on this journey. I got a great technician named Tim who has helped bring all these episodes to you. And my commitment was to walk through my comic book passions as I experienced them since I was seven years old. And I've done that. And it took maybe less time than I thought it would. But but I have absolutely had the very best time expressing all of my passions to you. And I've had the best time hearing back from all of you how much that you enjoyed taking this trip, which... I didn't know that I'd be talking to 10 or 20 or five people, but you guys showed up. You showed up in record numbers. The audience for this show has grown exponentially, especially recently. It, it, it speaks to the excitement around comics and all that's going on and all the ways that pop culture is blowing up. But, but I'm not here to do recap, recap shows or recap episodes of whatever I loved about the newest Invincible or the newest Falcon or the newest, you know, whatever is out there. Um, there are other mechanisms. There are other websites that do it. They do it great. There's no shortage to hear that. I, 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 I was able to flex a little on the WandaVision because I had knowledge that went far beyond. Anytime you start pushing the ball back beyond 1980, in this culture, you're going to have an advantage. If you were around 70 up, it, think about the guys who, who, who go even further than that. And so I was able to share those passions with you and that was great and, and, and the audience has grown and you guys have been so great and when I do these store appearances and you guys, you alarm me. Everyone is telling me about the podcast and I, I, it's so great that I had people that I could talk to and you guys heard me and you've been entertained and I am so touched and I continue to be touched. But for the moment, I am just out of of, of gas. I, I have nothing more to, to say, to add Um it has become a real obsession the last six weeks trying to think of episodes and ideas and concepts and things that I think will entertain you. And I think I can get there again. I just need to uh, 
to bring and tidy up this run, which we're going to call the end of season run. It was 90 episodes. It was over 100 hours worth of entertainment. And I am so thankful you took this journey with me and you walked through comic books with me. And hopefully along the way, I hope that I um, was able to point you in the direction of some cool comic book creators and maybe some cool comic books and comic book stories. And uh, I know that I'll be back. I just don't know when. Um, it could be, you know, that something fires me up and I got to get back to this mic and share more adventures with you in the world of comic books and pop culture. But I am so thankful that you walked this road with me and that we uh, we, we we shared these stories, some of which I had bottled up and I couldn't wait to tell you. I, I, let, let's be honest. The show never got more traction than when I shared with you all the behinds the scenes of the Heroes Reborn saga. It had everything. It had Marvel, it had Image, it had all your big players, it had all your big icons, it had money, it had back backdoor deals, it had some subterfuge. I mean, it was it was crazy. That stuff was absolutely nuts. And uh and and you guys have shared with me how much you enjoyed that. Along the way, I've always tried to take the positive tact with whatever I share with you. Some stuff is just fascinating to me and I've been dying to share it with you for 20 years. Some of the processes, some of the thoughts and and the thinking and that, that went behind constructing maybe some of your favorite comics or some of your favorite um, events and, and your personalities. And and I've, I've tried to not hurt anybody along the way. I hope that by, by just sharing kind of what went down uh, like again, recently my blind item episode, I, I wanted to protect those guys. They don't need to have that. Um, some of them uh, 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 discussed in a manner that, that that would define what they did in a different way. It was better to tell the story and to protect it. And there's a couple a couple doozies I've been holding on to. And, and when I come back, if I find my way back, I will definitely let you guys in on that. But please know how much I appreciated uh, the two things that, that mattered the most to me, and yesterday in Publishers Weekly, they had a roundtable with a bunch of different uh, retailers talking about the changes in comics of the last year. And Cardi Angelo of Earth 2 uh, 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 in Southern California, up, up in the LA area, the Valley, he mentioned when I did the sketches every day to raise, comic, raise funds for comic book stores last year in the pandemic, and that really rocked me and I was scared for all the comic book stores, especially the ones that I frequented. And I know that they're all, you know, helmed by people who love comic books the way I do. And we raised well over $200,000 for all the stores involved. I never touched the money. You, if you bought a sketch from me, you paid the store directly. It was, it was a thrill. It kept me going. And then this podcast kept me going. And those are the two things I'll remember the most about the last year, raising the money for the comic stores in the way that we did, all the different comic stores that I continue to hear from, I'm so glad that almost 99% of them made it through to the other side. And what we did, literally, the funds from each drawing were more than the stimulus checks that the government was giving out. So I'm very proud of, of, of that extra effort that we gave and we were able to help out comic book stores. But you guys helped me out, all of you guys and gals, by jumping on this podcast and listening to the stories. I don't want to be an interview. You're like, Rob, have guests. That's not what I want to do. I don't want to interview. I interviewed Robert Kirkman because he's a special once-in-a-lifetime talent. He's also one of my best friends. I knew that you would be thrilled. I wanted to celebrate 50 episodes. Just as on today, on my 90th episode, I'm saying goodbye. How long? I don't know. Um, but but uh, I will hope to find my way back here in the near future. For now, I got to recharge I got to look at things in a different way. I got to look for new stories or maybe uncork some old ones and, 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 and uh, find a path that, that, that I'll be, uh, that I can fuel another long run of episodes. So Rob Observation season one is officially uh, closing, uh, closing up. The curtains are, are coming down. It has been my pleasure to share with you my passion of comics and my love and, uh, I hope that we will find each other again in the near future and that it will be fulfilling and we can pick up where we left off. Uh, on social media, I'm at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. I'm at Robert Liefeld on Twitter. Hopefully you guys can seek me out. I'm all over social media. I'm on Facebook. Uh, it, again, has been such a pleasure doing this show for these past 90 episodes. What a fun, uh, just from an idea to a Blue Yeti mic, 
And, uh, and here we went and there we go. And thank you so much again for sharing, for spreading the words. Go back, listen to these episodes. Man, there's some great, fun episodes. I had the best time recording, talking about comics and events and creators and, and, and seek out that catalog. Listen to it. I do this for free. No advertising. I just do it because I love doing it. But I'm going to go rest up and you know the drill. You are going to, need to now more than ever. For an extended period of time, you need to take care of yourselves. And you uh, need to uh, be good, be good to each other, stay safe, and we will talk again real soon. Thank you.